0: Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stammel Major, and in this episode we're continuing with Alfred Loomis's The Cruise of the Hippocampus, and we're on chapter 7. Chapter 7 Beating Up to Windward. Having, by the timely use of the motor, dodged the water spout which threatened us with destruction, we three members of the tribe of Hippocampus, the redoubtable Joe Squibb, the loquacious Joe Chambers, and my humble self, looked hopefully for better things in the weather line. It had taken us 12 days to cover but little more than 300 miles and we had experienced every variety of calm from the flat motionless kind to the sort that stands you on your beam ends and makes you gnash your teeth at the useless slatting sails. We had had our share of squalls and rain. We had found the wind an adept at shifting from northeast to southeast depending on whether we wanted to sail toward these points and we had come to the conclusion that the month to cruise the Cuban waters is not July. But at the moment of avoiding the water spout, we thought only of putting greater distance between us and the wicked-looking mass of clouds that had spawned it. To that end, we shut off the motor and took steps to cure the missing that had given us palpitation of the heart while we were running away from the sea monster. By experiment, I learned that one set of dry cells was weak, and for these I substituted a new set. By inspection I found that the timer had become fouled through the use of too great a quantity of oil. This also was replaced. At the suggestion of Chambers, whose words were lent greater weight by the parenthetical remark that the wind was then blowing towards us from the cloud bank, I squirted kerosene into the carburettor with the motor running and partially cleansed the cylinders of carbon. By these means, and by the use of sanctimonious words judiciously misapplied, we were presently underway to the tune of a rhythmic exhaust. The storm centre, still sending its lightnings into the sea, receded into the distance as we motored east, and in time the moon emerged and lighted us on our way. For two hours we continued under power, and then a gentle south easterly springing up, we shut off the motor and made the best course we could in the direction of East Guano Cay, whose lighthouse is the first aid coming from the westward to the approach of the city of Cienfuegos. Luck attended our landfall of this light. Up to six o'clock in the evening of July 12th, we had logged only 30 miles in 24 hours, and I had let the entire period of daylight go by without a shot at the sun. What's the use, I thought, of finding that we haven't moved appreciably since yesterday? Better perhaps to hope that the current has eased us on our way. Hence, when I went off watch at midnight, my idea of our position was vague, but I diligently stepped off our various courses on the chart, 19 miles south-southeast, 7 north-northeast, 3 south under power, 10 east under power, and finally 9 north-northeast under sail again, and assumed an absolutely unjustified dead reckoning position. It placed us... 20 miles south of Jack Taylor Reef, and 35 southwest of East Guano Cay. I was on the point of imparting this misinformation to Chambers, who had relieved me on deck, when he sang out, lights oh! Al has the eyes of an eagle despite the fact that he was nearly ejected from the Navy because of deficient sight, and we expect him to make all our landfalls. This was the happiest one he has ever made for a hurried observation of the lights bearing informed me that we were only two miles from Jack Taylor Reef and ploughing directly for it. Not the light itself, but only its flash against the clouds was visible, and had we come up another mile to westward, we should probably have terminated the cruise among the sharks of the reef. This experience has taught me one thing, never to let pass an opportunity for fixing our position by celestial observation no matter how far offshore we are or how close to an unremarkable coast. Luck doesn't always break for the small boat sailor, and the currents, working silently and unobtrusively, may set him on the rocks before he knows it. The wind had now shifted to the east, and we tacked about and headed away from the reef. Daylight found us still beating toward the orient, the lighthouse then plainly visible but a total of 12 hours slipped by before we had made good 20 miles and saw ourselves in a position to round the light and shape a course for Cienfuegos. Fuegos. Then we ran for it, taking the wind from slightly abaft the beam and with every stitch of canvas straining. It was our first experience with the full strength of the trade wind in the Caribbean, and although we kept all sail spread, we watched the seams carefully and were prepared to lower at the first indication of failure. But, barring a slight ripping along the seams of the mainsail, where, in years past, the backstay had been allowed to chafe the canvas, everything held, and we made knots. Banging across the shoal that extends eastward from East Guano and attended by some friendly gulls, which took turns flying overhead to peck at our main and mizzen trucks, we enjoyed for two hours the sensation of having exactly the right amount of wind, while sailing on a beeline for our destination. But presently, The waves broke no more against our weather side, nor immersed the bowsprit, nor washed the lee deck from main shrouds to mizzen. We righted to a more even keel and prepared with resignation to meet the afternoon's calm. It came, ushered in by an arched squall which sent us to the main halyards in a hurry. Poor, said the skipper, when the mainsail was furled and its boom rested in the crutch. If we can't do better than that, we'll be out of luck when a real squall strikes us. ''All right,'' said the exact. ''let's run her up again for practice.'' He spoke, ironically. ''Shoot,'' said the first luff, rubbing the pelting raindrops from his eyes, and in another thirty seconds the mainsail was again spread to the squall. ''Now down with it,'' said the skipper, when the halyards were in order, ''and don't let us shame ourselves before the local fishermen. Down she came, with creditable precision, and up again the gaff travelled to the throat pendant as the squall passed by and the wind slacked off. But calm immediately overtook us, and we lowered away once more. If we razzle-dazzle the sail up and down half a dozen times for every squall, drawled Squib, as we went below to look for books and writing material, we'll be sailing under bare poles in about a week, take the advice of an old sea dog and put a reef or two in the mainsail. The ensuing night was one of the most uncomfortable we have ever spent, for we took a cross chop from the heavy sea thrown against an almost perpendicular coast, Spray came over in barrelfuls, and twice Chambers was thrown bodily from his bunk to the cabin deck. Try as we would, we seemed to get no nearer to Colorado's point light, which marks the entrance to Cienfuegos Bay, for the wind shifted to frustrate every tack. Finally at daylight, we doused all sail, started the motor, and put an end to tacking fruitlessly about. Squibb, whom I relieved at four o'clock, helped me with these duties and then stayed on deck, one arm clinched around the mainmast to watch the miracle of sunrise he more than any other man I ever knew takes supreme delight in nature's beauties and in the latter days of this cruise, he has gone without sleep for hours on end to absorb the charm of the West Indian islands this our landfall at Cienfuegos was more than usually appealing for the sun rose tardily behind the lofty mountains of the Trinidad Range sending before it streaks of crimson and flashes of silver that illuminated wind-torn cirrus or brought into sun rosiet prominence some upstanding mountains of cumulus. Near us, the sea broke savagely on an outlying reef but between the capes guarding the entrance to Cienfuegos Bay We caught a glimpse of the peace and security that was to be ours after six days at sea. Under power we passed by Colorado's point and then, finding a favourable slant of wind, set all sail. At the moment of passing the station pilot ship we broke our ensign to the breeze and from the corners of our eyes watched the antics aboard that craft. With the energy characteristic of a certain element of humanity when an American dollar is seen to be slipping away. The pilots hallooed and waved and jumped in the air. We could not understand the words and feigned blindness as well as deafness, but I could imagine some such monologue as this issuing from every pilot's throat. Carumba, an American yacht entering the bay without a pilot, Stingy New York millionaires unwilling to pay us what is due us, may bad luck overtake them and the nearest reef wreck them. But we entered the broad and beautiful bay without mishap and by seven o'clock were anchored off the city, ready to receive customs and quarantine inspectors. They came out in small motorboats, courteously put us through the formalities, and by nine we were on dry land, voraciously surrounding eggs and coffee. We had intended remaining at the city of a hundred fires, only long enough to take on food and water and to obtain a full night's sleep, but we had not reckoned on the delightful hospitality of T.W. Bibb, clerk of the American Consulate, When Chambers met him and Mrs. Bibb at the consulate and they learned that we were the crew of the diminutive hippocampus, nothing but Al's promise to stay another day and partake of regular American cooking would satisfy them. First of all, however, we must agree to accompany the Bibbs to the Cienfuegos Yacht Club and swim with them in the shark-proof enclosure. Al, returning aboard, found all hands as enthusiastic as himself, and on the following morning, we arose at 6, something of a wrench the second day in port, picked up our hosts at a wharf, and stood down the bay to the yacht club. A bay as magnificent as that of Cienfuegos, if situated anywhere along the American coast, would be literally dotted with sail and motorcraft. Located in Cuba, as it is, enjoyment of aquatic sport is hampered by the high cost of boats and gasoline but it speaks well for the energy and sportsmanship of the Cienfuegans that they have a yacht club as fine as that of Havana. There are many high speed motorboats in the bay and the art of rowing is practiced although according to the explosive Mr Constant Titus, American rowing coach of the club, it is not yet perfected. For an hour or so we swam in the shark proof stockade, a most necessary feature of a bathing beach in these waters, and then breakfasted aboard, Mrs. Bibb presiding in the galley. Never was a day more auspiciously begun, and since leaving the States at least, never more satisfactorily ended, for that evening we dined at the Bibb's picturesque villa in the suburbs of San Fuegos, and knew again the delights of home society and cooking. Come to think of it, the day was pretty satisfactory altogether for we met various officials of the ward line who manifested a lively interest in our craft and showed us how to purchase stores at the lowest figure and with one of them octavio Echemendia we lunched at the union hotel by him we were introduced to his uncle the mayor alvaro suera mayor of cienfuegos with whom we had a private audience at his home is an energetic upright public servant of the type that is conspicuously lacking in Cuban politics. If there was more like him in insular affairs, there would be greater prosperity in Cuba and less cause for apprehension in Washington. In mid-afternoon of the day following, being provided with copies of the local newspaper which spoke of our reception by the mayor and in an extravagant Spanish extolled the heroism of Hippocampus's crew, the able little yawl resumed her travels. Under sail, she stood down the bay until she had brought us to the narrows, where, in the shadow of Hagoa Castle, built generations ago as a defence against the Jamaican buccaneers, she let go anchor. We rowed ashore in the waning daylight to inspect the disused castle, returned to shift anchorage for the night, and then at 10.30, suddenly determined to get underway and take advantage of a northerly slant of air. Drifting lazily down the narrows, our canvas just filling we showed our heels to a native fishing schooner and felt again the heave of the open sea. Then, rounding Colorado's point, we laid a course for Cape Cruz and resumed the regular watch order. I went on shortly after midnight to find the descending moon picking out the peaks of the Trinidad Range and to revel in the novelty of a fair wind and a smooth sea. But in twenty minutes, conditions had changed and we were bucking close-hauled in a rapidly rising chop. The wind had come down from the mountains unheralded by clouds and in another hour it was blowing with the full vigor of the trade though we buried our nose deep in the sea and had to luff occasionally to spill the air from the sails we held on and by eight of the morning watch had put 50 miles between us and our point of departure this for the hippocampus was traveling at cienfuegos we had been told that the atmosphere gave every promise of an approaching hurricane early in the season as it was, but since leaving that city we had been aware of a changing conditions. The clouds were more orthodox, the sunsets better, the calms fewer and the direction of the wind more constant. As to its strength, there was no kick coming. We took the precaution on the first afternoon out from port of putting a reef in the sail, the first since leaving home, and the watch below slept more peacefully as a result. But in mid-morning of the next day when the trade really began to blow, we doused the mainsail altogether and until late afternoon proceeded easily under jib, jigger and a trisail improvised from our storm jib. That evening, during a period of calm which was not duplicated on the remainder of the run, we double reefed and yet logged 6 knots in the early morning hours. In the forenoon, having a more moderate breeze, we shook out first one reef and then the other, but we have not since started a night without reefing down. Midway of this voyage, we again changed our plans and decided against proceeding directly to Kingston. Although we were adding greatly to our mileage with each passing hour, our distance was not by any means made good, and it was not until daylight of the morning of the fourth day that Al sighted and brought a beam Cape Cruz Light 200 miles from Cienfuegos so we decided to make Port Antonio, Jamaica, our next objective. Late that afternoon, when we sighted the precipitous island and knew ourselves to be within the influence of a contrary current, a breeze came like a gift from the gods and blew us due east for four hours. Then, as it shifted to eastward, we changed our course to south-southeast, hoping against hope that when we again sighted Jamaica, we would be within striking distance of Port Antonio. But... At first, we refused to credit it. We made our morning landfall on Point Galena, 35 miles to westward. Hitherto, I have not dwelt greatly on the difficulties of small boat navigation or done more than intimate that dead reckoning positions are often rendered unscientific by the element of hope. But the time has come to be specific, to include the working of a site for navigational sharks to pick to pieces, but first let me give a picture of navigating the hippocampus as it is done, say, on the morning of sighting Galena Point. We were sailing close to the wind on the port tack under reefed mainsail, a heavy sea rolling and the spray flying so incessantly that the main cabin hatches kept partially closed. I inform the helmsman, who happens to be Joe Squibb, that I'm about to take a sight and hand him paper, pencil and watch. This timepiece is not of great value and I have no hesitancy about stopping it finger on the second hand to make it conform exactly with chronometer time. This, a lazy man's trick, eliminates CW or chronometer watch from my calculations and so reduces the chances of error. After taking my sights, I again compare the watch with the chronometer, gingerly taking up the handsome sextant that was given me at the outset of the cruise. I call to Joe that I am ready and he changes course to run partially with the wind and keep the spray down. Then I crawl to the cabin house on one hand and my knees and stand upright, brace myself against the mast. The little ship tosses so violently that it takes minutes to bring the sun down to the horizon. But at length, the trick is done and I call Mark to the helmsman. He records the time and I read him the angle. Two other sights are marked preferably at equal intervals of time, and then, calling back to the companionway, I descend, pausing in its comparative security to ascertain the index error of the sextant. The three sights are compared, and if the alteration of the sun's angle is logical, so many seconds of arc for seconds of time, I proceed to work the one which seemed at the moment of taking to be the most accurate, They are never averaged, and if the progression does not seem logical, they are discarded, and new sites are taken. The patent log is read, and from that, and a glance at the courses and distance made since the last fix, a DR position is assumed. This dead reckoning position, as everyone knows who is familiar with the saint hilaire system of navigation, does not have to be accurate. A navigator turned loose in the middle of the ocean, not knowing his position within a 1,000 miles, could, by using the St Hilaire method, determine his exact fix in two sights. On the morning in question about 10 miles offshore, I assumed that we were in latitude 18 degrees 25 minutes north, longitude 76 degrees 36 minutes west, one mile to eastward of a straight line drawn between Cape Cruz and Port Antonio. Our good easterly run on the night previous, I had balanced against leeway and head current, but the fix showed that we actually were 25 miles west-northwest of our course. The discrepancy must be ascribed to the difficulty of holding a small boat on her course, to sailing close into a wind that veers imperceptibly to one's disadvantage and to the human equation, which includes poor dead-reckoning judgment." Below is the exact site as it was worked with shortcuts, mental interpolations of fractional parts, abbreviations, and all its crudities. This, as will be recognised, is a site worked according to the cosine have formula of the Saint-Hillier method. Two sites, taken at different times, or at the same time of different celestial objects, are necessary for obtaining a fix. But in this instance, our latitude was known by our distance from shore... And the single Sumner line locating our position in the accompanying detail of a chart of Jamaica, it is interesting to note that the nineteen mile intercept or altitude difference when carried away from the sun on the true azimuth of seventy eight and one half degrees cuts dry land. However, the perpendicular to the azimuth or the Sumner line somewhere along which the ship was positioned at the moment of taking the sight extends into deep water. During the succeeding hours of beating against a boisterous trade wind whose accompanying billows almost lost us to sight between crests, we had only the minor satisfaction of noting that as we approached the shore on the port tack, the wind hauled to northward and permitted us to skirt the beach at a slowly converging angle. As we beat outward on the starboard tack, the wind veered correspondingly to southward, thus permitting us to make easting on each tack. Yet so tedious is the process of beating into a wind almost directly contrary to the desired course, it took us until daylight of the next morning to come abreast of Port Antonio Light, thirty-five miles eastward of Galena Point. Then, bowling in with the wind more than a little abaft of the beam, we observed a curious trick of the air currents. One instant we were sailing free, and the next we had encountered a land breeze that took our sails aback, There being none of the customary interval between shifts in which the air is stagnant, it seemed as if the wind was suddenly determined to keep us at sea. But we have a trump card that takes all tricks, and it wasn't long before we were motoring in, sails furled. Port Antonio, dominated by Blue Mountain Peak which rises 7,400 feet into the air and encircled by incredible hills that seem to be impossible in both their steepness and contour, was a sight at sunrise even more gracious than Cienfuegos. Joe Squibb, again keeping the deck with me, revelled in the beauty of the tropical foliage and the absolute perfection of the landlocked harbour. His occasional word of appreciation soon seconded by Joe Chambers, who came on deck in time to help us select our anchorage. Before the hour of six, C. H. Vidal Hall, port collector, rode out to inspect our papers and welcome us to Jamaica. And before the sun was very high in the sky, we had been visited by half the foreigners and all of the locals in the vicinity of the port. Of the latter, one who was more than usually gifted in the choice of words presented us with a dozen grapefruit, and we were relieved that despite the difference in our backgrounds, we were able to thank him in a common language. Over and above the natural attractions of Jamaica, it has an advantage to me that is almost immeasurable. Its inhabitants all understand the English language. Having long since despaired of making of myself a linguist, I placed my faith in Joe Squibb while we were in Cuba and hoped through him to obtain the simple necessities of cruising life. But since an experience that he had in San Fuegos, I have decided that we are better off in English-speaking countries. He entered a store, dictionary in hand, and paused in the doorway to learn that the Spanish equivalent of eggs is huevos. This word and no other he uttered slowly and distinctly to the Cuban storekeeper and that worthy gentleman, assuming a blank expression, replied, I speak no English. Of course, after Joe had described in sign language what an egg is and how it is eaten fried, he was successful in securing the material for our breakfast, but I have not had the same faith in him since. Better, I think, for us to fatten up for a time on the grapefruit, bananas and other staples which the kindly Jamaicans have given us. That's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mates level, And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.